I'm in Port Townsend, Washington, right next to the Pacific Ocean-ish. I mean, am I next to the Pacific Ocean? I mean, it's pu- kind of like where the Pacific Ocean meets Puget Sound. Does that sound accurate? It's really interesting that you said ish, because all the rivers here end in ish. <laughs> and there's a poem about it. It's called Ish River Country by Robert Sun, who's considered to be our possibly our greatest regional poet of the last hundred years. So, yeah, you're in Ish River Country, Skokomish, Snohomish, Samish, uh, Skykomish. Nimkish. Uh, those are the Ish rivers. So the folks that lived here a few hundred years ago, they were big on Ish. They were the Salish. <laughs> Which means big on Ish, I believe. I, I'm not sure. I may be translating that improperly. <laughs> well, it means that, uh, in fact, the people of. So, for example, the people who lived at the mouth of a certain river were called Skokomish people. Uh, the Ish part is like Spanish or English. Ah. Kind of an inclusive term for the people. And the place was the first part, like Skoke. Skoke would probably tell people something about the location. Um, and in some of the rivers, it names a quality, like um, you know, a place where there's a certain kind of fish in abundance or maybe a certain kind of a berry in abundance. Uh, you'll find all over the Northwest uh, words that are related to um, the meaning for berries, like olali, which sounds like you're kind of having these berries kind of drooling, dissolving off your tongue. You're really, your fingers are all purple. And uh, you, what do you call that? Oh, lolly. So there's a lot of places that have names that, with a lot of L's in them and O's and A's, and they're all about berries. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm with Forrest Schomer, who is an expert at collecting wild seeds. And uh, and, you, and he sells the seeds at his uh, website, InsidePassageSeeds.com. Um, and I believe I met you three years ago um, at a Northwest Permaculture Convergence. I think it was 2009. And then um, and then again in 2010 I saw you, and I, I recorded you, and you were standing next to a, a, a pile of sod that somebody had put tomato plants in, and you were talking about how to save the tomato seeds. So I have a video of you up on YouTube of, uh, of talking about tomatoes and tomato seeds. And here's these tomatoes that had not been watered all summer long. So it kind of was a twofer, how to, how to deal with tomato seeds. And at the same time, here are some tomato plants that went all summer without a drop of water uh, of irrigation um, and hardly any water that fell from the sky. So um, I... I uh, I, there's so many things for you and I to talk about, and we've been talking about stuff all day, and, um, and it's time to make a podcast and share some of this, and it's kind of like, well, we have a limited amount of time, and so we have to limit the topics we can talk about. Um, and I know that the, the one thing that um, astonished me when I was here a year ago is that you said that you were a member of the, uh, the weed board for a while and, and, then, uh, and put some, uh, some, some plants on, on the weed lists. And, um, and I know that, that you, oh, and, and I should mention, we just got done spending a little time at the Camas Prairie. And um, last, when I was here a little over a year ago, I, I, I got pictures of it in bloom, and I lost all those pictures. And so this year we're here, and we, we missed the bloom by a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, what a beautiful thing. So this is like, is it an acre and a half? Is that how big it is? It's a little bit less than an acre and a half out of probably hundreds of acres in 
prehistory times. That would be prior to 1792 for this area. What what an amazing! I just uh, I'm I'm always stunned and fascinated. Uh, this is the second time I've been to it uh, today, uh, and. I imagine it was it's, it was an enormous amount of work to get it started, and and it's probably been just you know a little bit of work each year to keep it maintained. But basically, um, well maybe you could tell us about what you you do a much better job than me. But uh, all I am I'm just very sad I lost those pictures. But um, tell us tell us what you've done and what this is. Well, when you say started, of course what I'm what I'm saying is this is prehistoric. This prairie is uh, by one estimate three thousand years old. This is the real old growth, and it doesn't appear to be anything. In the wintertime, it just looks like a field of grass. In the springtime, it comes alive in different colors, representing an incredible diversity of species that were sown by nature a very long time ago, and they've persisted through all kinds of changes. And the changes that have come in the last 220 years, that's Vancouver's era, uh, not much changed the first 60 years or so. Then there was settlement. Then things changed really rapidly. Uh, notably, um, people who raised pigs ran their pigs over the canvas patches. They're all over Puget Sound and beyond. And the pigs grubbed out the canvas bulbs, uh, probably candy to them. And then the farmers replaced it with potatoes. So now we have potatoes. We don't have much canvas left. And there's many locations right here on the Olympic Peninsula where there were historic prairies, and then they became potato fields. And then they became, most commonly, they became small airports because the canvas prairies tend to be flat and large. So, um, you know, you need, say, 4,000 linear feet to land a small plane. Um, I could name several locations like that that uh, if ever we could get those planes to land somewhere else and just let it grow out, you know, some of it's still there. Some of it is still there. It needs a burn, and then magic happens the next year. We've seen it in a lot of locations. Uh, so it, it's a question of changing land use, and it'll only happen when we've done enough education and I mean we is a very large collective we that includes the tribes, the Permies, um, native plant enthusiasts, and historians that would convince people that maybe to have this uh, vestige of what was here more than 200 years ago is very valuable, that there's important survival lessons in that, um, important lessons about proper diet, important lessons about uh, other species and what their needs are, uh, how we can all live together here, and um, I, you know, I hope to live to see some of those changes. I hope to see the uh, Jefferson County Airport as a canvas field again, because it used to be called Station Prairie in about 1855. Yeah, the station was a military station. When the first soldiers came in with the settlers to protect the settlers, they looked at that spot and said, gee, it's flat. You can see a long distance here. It will be safe. Uh, and there's just these blue flowers, so that's no problem. We'll just bring the pigs in and they'll eat up all the blue flowers, and then that's what happened. Now we have two runways there. So now I remember when I was here a little over a year ago, you told me a story. You painted a picture for me using the English language of what a day might have been like or, or what a season might have been like 700 years ago. 
um, please repaint that for me. <laughs> what time of year do we want to be talking about? Well, you you pick 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 the whole year or or pick the the important parts. Bounce back and forth all you want. I I, I remember it so clear myself, but you will tell it a thousand times better than me. Well, I'll pick a day in May before 1792 because uh, Vancouver came in May. So his observations, which are recorded in a couple of books. They make great reading, um, and Menzies reports, uh, Archibald Menzies, who was on board with Vancouver as he did exploration around this region and named islands and mountains and so forth after people that he didn't know, like the Marquis de Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Bob. <laughs> it was like that. I'm sure there was some um, some payoffs involved, too. Um, to have a, a mountain or stream or, or a location named after you even while you were enjoying the courts of Europe. Um, the, the scene would be uh, open meadows dotted with the occasional tree. The trees at this location would include cedars, firs, Madrone primarily, because those are trees that uh, are tolerant of this savanna-like uh, habitat, which then, imagine there's no, there's no water source here year-round, so people would come in seasonally, harvest uh, shellfish, and probably herbs from the prairie, and then after some short stay, they would move on. And they would come back year after year. Different tribes would frequent this location, as we understand it. Uh, there were certain people that had, let's say, harvest rights, but other tribes had agreements with them that it would be okay to come here at other times and when they're not stepping on each other's toes and kind of everybody respecting the commons and not taking too much. It's got a very key location. It's actually called the Key City by nickname, uh, being right at the mouth of Puget Sound. So there was a lot of traffic passed here in ancient times of uh, Indian canoes, of long, long cedar or spruce canoes that were hollowed out and burned and then occupied by as many as 20 or more people sometimes paddling with uh, goods and uh, trading items and maybe the harvest from another location of dried salmon or little bulbs uh, that could be stored for the winter and cooked up in February when the food was a little scarce. So it was very colorful and I'm sure there was uh, quite a bit of wildlife. I know that it, uh, here in town, and this town is it's not overly developed. There's a lot of open land in the town, um, and the lots are large, and it's pretty green, and there's no sidewalks in most of the town, so it's just they lay down a little street about, you know, 20-some feet wide, and the rest of it's green. Well, uh, just in the years prior to my arrival here, which would be, say, in the late 60s, there were still bear sightings here in town. There were cougar sightings even maybe a couple decades later. But as more and more people came, and especially people with large dogs that bark all night, uh, and uh, lights that go on when there's motion and so forth, uh, the bearers eventually receded, and they were probably also killed off. But the, the real final blow to uh, natural wildlife, the full range of mammals here, uh, which included wolf at one time, was in 1990 when there was a very uh, hotshot realtor came to town and basically sold the town and then he moved to some other place. Uh, it all happened really fast. Um, and so he would find 20-acre parcels out in the edges of town and chop them into fives 
sell those off. People would put up fences to separate their fives, and then it would be impossible for migratory mammals to move through that area. And of course, every every five-acre household had to have one or two of its own dogs. So, I mean, that became human habitat, and the wildlife left. Uh, we still have a lot of wildlife, and that, that is part of the scene that I would have you imagine from prior to 1700, 1800. It would include eagles, they're here. It would include ravens, they're here. It would include passing orcas, <coughs> passing gray whales occasionally. Um, humpbacks, rare, but occasional. Dolls, porpoise, these are things out in the water that uh, we see today. Um, you would see at the mouths of streams little villages, like the nearest stream here is about six miles south. There was a village there. Uh, remnants of the village you can still see uh, if, you're, if you're sharp. It's not obvious, but there's certain plants and certain pieces of ground that you could see were inhabited, probably temporary. And then when the salmon were running past those locations, people would congregate there and uh, harvest the salmon in various ways. So now I remember you telling me about with like the people would would pull up their canoes and then they would have these large prairies and they would have lots of them and this was one of many and um, their harvesting practices the how they would maintain a polyculture I mean basically it sounded to me like um, something permaculture esque so in a way we could say perhaps permaculture is modeled after what you described to me some time ago or um, you know maybe maybe just brilliant minds came to same conclusions or I, I don't know it but it, it was um, <clears throat> it was remarkable and then you also told me about the burning and the maintenance of the land um, and and then once you tell that story I have a question for you well here's what I think they have in common uh, respect for the matrix you don't destroy the matrix uh, you, you can have little bits of activity here and there. For example, uh, if, if you're native a long time ago and you don't have a shovel, because there weren't any, you have a digging stick. And with that digging stick, you can open up a hole maybe six, eight inches deep or more, and then you'll find those canvas bulbs down there at about that depth. And because they leave a seed stem after the, heart, after the flower, and then you know where to dig. And I have done that, and uh, they can be thickly clustered. It was sort of like little garlic bulbs, except they're single, and they're numerous. Uh, and sometimes they're large. If they're, you know, kind of like old-growth canvas, uh, would be hard to find now. So um, that, I see a common thread there with uh, permaculture, is uh, respect the matrix. Um, install major plants like trees and large shrubs and so forth and uh, masses of herbs that are just going to grow outward and get bigger and bigger uh, to kind of hold the pattern together and then work in the spaces in the pattern uh, just like the companion planters do. In other words, if you have a, a bed full of cabbages, you've got the intersection of the space that a cabbage takes that's open. So you put an onion in it because the onion is vertical and fills that space and the cabbage is more roundish. Uh, and so they complement each other and according to uh, the companion planting books that I read years ago, those two like to grow together. The uh, onion helps to protect the cabbage from the cabbage moth by its uh, strong smell. Uh, so I think that's that's something they share. What they, what's different significantly is um, I'm talking about getting to know and appreciating what is already here, 
that worked for people long before the settlers came. It worked for thousands of years. Uh, in permaculture, we gather things from all over the world and say, I want one of these and one of those, and I'll take this from Europe, and I'll take this from Asia, and then kind of be very creative with that and make something brand new out of it that's never been seen anywhere before, perhaps, in quite that pattern. Uh, I'd say that seems like the thing to do when you have property and you want to carve out a, you know, a, a livelihood or survival from it. Uh, but um, the gap is for us all to become more and more skilled and familiar with our natives. Uh, we want to guarantee their survival. I wouldn't want to come out 50 years from now and say, we succeeded in permaculture, but we lost native species getting there. That, to me, would be a loss. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And I particularly would um, uh, call attention to some herbalists on the West Coast who have become quite skilled with the natives. Uh, they could have just focused on European herbs, like most herbalists do uh, in North America. Uh, but they really looked a little bit deeper. I'll mention, for example, uh, Cascade Anderson in Portland, who's kind of um, the grandmother figure to the herbalist movement, which is very complementary to the permaculture movement. I've been sort of oscillating between those two communities for about 30 years, having a great time going to different gatherings, often held almost back-to-back -back at the same locations, and sometimes with some of the same people. Um, it's people who like to um, be on the land, really appreciate beauty, wildness, and uh, also like to eat uh, from, you know, the most desirable part of the food chain. <laughs> so Skeeter would be one. I mean, we talk about Skeeter a lot. I've even made podcasts recently with Skeeter. Certainly he has been involved in those communities and others. He really has uh, spanned the range of... Um, communities of interest in the Northwest, each of which has grown its own tradition, its own gatherings, uh, its own books, culture. Really, it's kind of a fascinating thing that we've been doing here for about 40 years. I remember when when uh, Skeeter, Michael Flarsky, and I met, it was around, I think he puts it one year earlier than I do, but let's call it 1973, and he had arrived from, I think, Michigan, kind of ambling westward and he got involved in a, a kind of a gleaning project where people from the cities would go out to the Yakima Valley and um, help with the harvest and also kind of find things that, had, you know, the tar harvest was done, like there's always a lot of apples left after the picking. The ones that were, say, a little bit green, that should have been red at harvest time, don't get picked. And then you can come back a few weeks later and they have turned red. So that project um, got him out into the countryside and he fell in love with eastern Washington and that's a whole story that he can tell from there. But uh, the next year he envisioned and prob probably was the main organizer of the first barter affair. And that was another landmark event because that's been going on now for nearly 40 years. The first one was on the shores of Lake Chelan in 1974, and I remember it well. So <clears throat> I want to I want to back up a few minutes, and I want to ask a question before I forget the question, and um, and it has to do with um, the, the Camas Prairie, and um, uh, and and of course what you have is, is, a, is a tiny piece of what was once there. And um, and the question that's burning in me is that um, I, I was told something about 
how much land was um, basically native agriculture land, like 500 years ago, 700 years ago. Um, I want to ask for on because it seems like you are probably the most educated educated person in this space that I'm aware of. There are others, and there, I, and there are some others that have a lot of education, and yet they're not sitting here with me at the moment. True. So uh, I, I want to ask you, what percentage of the Pacific Northwest do you believe was being used for um, uh, native agricultural practices, where they would um, manage a prairie and, and keep it in, um, you know, in production? Well, I'm going to narrow that a little bit by just talking about Ish River Country, which we're going to call the watersheds from roughly Olympia, Washington, northwards to the north end of Vancouver Island and west of the Cascades, because I'm less familiar with what was happening beyond that in, say, the Willamette Valley. It's more, for me, anecdotal. What was taking place east of the Cascades, wholly different. Fair enough. Fair enough. The area that you're familiar with. Okay. I have studied maps and found about 80-some prairie sites in western Washington. Uh, I haven't made a similar study for British Columbia, but uh, it would be fewer. Those are sites that, uh, like the one here in Fort Townsend, were historic prairies. So when settlers arrived, they identified those locations as being prairie. They were unique. First of all, as I said earlier, they were flat. Uh, they were very easily uh, turned into something else, like housing sites, potato fields, uh, pig runs. Um, uh, farmers found that the soil, except that it was kind of rocky, was also fertile, so they just dug into it and changed it from uh, ancient agriculture of this region to more modern agriculture. They put the plow to it. Yeah. So ancient agriculture, what percentage of this area do you suppose at one time was ancient agriculture? Oh, less than 1%, absolutely. What, really, because I, I recently was visiting with somebody and they were saying that it was an excess of 40%. Not a chance. Not a chance. No, it was all forested. Well, I, I heard that the forests showed up after they ran the pigs and stuff. I mean, Not basically sure. part of what you've told me is that um, uh, they would have a prairie, they would have a, a patch of prairie land that they would maintain for their food, and, um, uh, and then they would burn back the trees. Well, it wasn't so much trees, and I, you know, I made... When I say not true, I don't know your informant. I can sort of guess, but you might be talking in that case about particular watersheds or what I call micro areas of Puget Sound and the, and the Ish River Country. But when you look at the larger Ish River Country, it's not suitable for any kind of agriculture. We got mostly steep mountainsides, um, higher elevations that uh, you couldn't ever. Nobody farms on it now even with all the technology. So, I mean, we're talking about just river mouths and, and uh, valleys that had uh, the occasional flat area where maybe it was a river channel 100 years ago, but now it's a meadow. I, could, I was just in one of those places last week, and, you know, you could see how it had made those transitions. And, you know, the flood could come this winter and reroute the river and make that meadow back into a river again. So that's kind of an ephemeral agriculture, but not 40%. No, I mean, you've got, for example, the San Juan Islands. They're covered with rocks. Um, nobody farmed that. Okay. 
All right. Wow, less than 1%. So now um, uh, that's a big change for me. I was, I was hoping you were going to say something like, you know, 25 to 30% or something like that. Because it, to me, when I, when I was told 40%, I was thinking, that is, that is, that is massive. I mean, the, ma- the number of people that must have lived here then had to be far greater than I ever imagined. Yeah, 40% might, uh, with the outside my knowing, but I can imagine the world Amit Valley might qualify for the mouth of the Fraser or something like that. Uh, not many other places. The, the deltas and the flatlands are not that extensive. Not only that, but uh, you take a valley like the Skagit Valley, which is agricultural now, and that valley is rising because it was under ice until about 3,000 years ago. And the ice compacted the land underneath it. And so when it first the ice receded there, I think it looked more like a fjord because you only have to go north about... 60 miles from the Skagit and you can see fjords like that that's in the coast of British Columbia it's still like that today so what happens is when the ice recedes and the weight is off of it the land actually rebounds and then gradually the water drains off of it so most of the Skagit is a very low lying valley with a a broad river that doesn't run too fast because it's at a low elevation and that's what builds up deltas and deltas are alluvial and that's a place where you can where you can farm that's a, that's a soil that works for farming. There isn't a whole lot of that around. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I know that you have limited time, and I've got a, a couple more important things I want to talk about. Uh, one is is that uh, with your weed board experience in the past and being a permaculturalist, I want to ask you, what do you believe the word noxious weed means? Uh, I think it's very unfortunate in a way um, when I was on that board, and it was called the Jefferson County Noxious Wheat Control Board, and it still is, um, it was the first four years, basically, I petitioned the commissioners to form a weed board in the county because, well, there were a lot of reasons for it. I won't recount right now. And uh, when they decided to go ahead and do that, we were one of the last three counties in the state to actually empower a weed board. Uh, I wanted to be on that board, so I uh, petitioned and I got on the board. I was appointed with a few other people, and then I was the chair. And I said, as long as I'm chairman, our purpose is not to annihilate any species. It's to educate people uh, about invasive species and, if, if necessary or if possible, to help them make decisions for their own land use, for example. Uh, and I said, we're not here to spray, we're not here to annihilate, everything is here for a reason. And that was persuasive enough at that time that nobody really contradicted that, and we got along nicely with the neighborhood. Now, interestingly, it's about 12 years later, and the current board is in a kind of a face-off with part of the community because they want to spray, they want to use Monsanto's glyphosate to kill particular species, and... um, a lot of people are unhappy about it. So they've moved from this position of just educating to uh, controlling. So for those that might not be familiar, glyphosate is the primary ingredient found, uh, the, the primary active ingredient that is used in Roundup. Um, and so uh, um, basically if you say glyphosate, then it's like, well, we could potentially go with another vendor, but they always manage to go with Monsanto. There is one other, <laughs> one other vendor that uses glyphosate, but we've been very particular. I should say who we are. This is just at this moment in time, the end of May 2012. Uh, we just formed a group that uh, is now called Jefferson County Ecological Roadsides. 
So we are the counterpoint to the weed board at this point uh, because we have a lot of similar concerns, but we don't want to get there by poisoning the land at all. Uh, it just won't fly politically in this county, and um, we're concerned about wildlife, children, uh, edible plants along the roadway where people and animals like to forage, nesting sites, uh, the natural beauty of the land without brown skeletons everywhere, um, the water downstream of a ditch that gets sprayed before a heavy rainstorm. Uh, those are some of our concerns, and those were my concerns back in 1999 when the board originally launched. I want to talk a little bit about Port Townsend um, to give a little backstory to what we're talking about, because you're just you're saying the people in this community, and and it's kind of like, here's what I've looked at in this community. It is a funky community. Um, it's like uh, uh, not a lot of very straight roads, um, a, a lot of independent businesses. I don't believe I've seen one chain business since I rolled into this town. Safeway. Is there a Safeway? Well, there's more, actually, but yeah. Okay, so somehow they're, they've been out of my line of sight. <laughs> well, that's, that's a conscious thing in the community that uh, um, the signage, uh, very particular, very encoded, so that uh, McDonald's is here, but you won't see big golden arches. You have to look pretty closely to see, oh, that's a McDonald's. I mean, there are identifying indications that it is, but it doesn't scream at you. No strip malls, you see. So we've been through it. We've, uh, it's, been a, it's been the political argument of this community for over 20 years. And generally, uh, those who don't want to change here have prevailed. So we stopped by a cafe earlier that um, was uh, not only into organic food, but they had loads of information on their walls about how they care about their food. And, and there was a lot of stuff I was very impressed with. And um, I'm thinking I want to eat all my meals there. It's, uh, uh, I can't remember what it's called, some kind of coffee shopper better cafe living. Bet, better living yeah and so I I, uh, I was really uh, enjoying that <clears throat> but I, I kind of just by looking at the town this is this is a town with a lot of really good character I, I'm going to say it's Missoula-esque <laughs> which is my highest rating for a town other than Missoula <laughs> I like Missoula <laughs> meet me in Missoula <laughs> yeah uh, another one that uh, is very kindred is Ashland Oregon it has a freeway through it, like Missoula. We don't. But in many other ways, uh, Ashland is like the inland Port Townsend. It's a little bit bigger. It has a big theater community. We have a theater community. That is, people like to, to perform music. We have a lot of that in Missoula. Uh, yeah. I'm going to get competitive with you now. Cultural, <laughs> cultural creatives gather in places like this. Yes. We, we tend to uh, first find a place that has natural beauty and maybe not too many ordinances and kind of go from there. So a lot of weed boards across the nation, <clears throat> their, their mission, I mean, they pretty much exist to help uh, um, move product for, for chem ag companies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. They start out from a, a good motive. Yes, I would agree with it. They started out with a good motive. And but then they typically get cash strapped for the job that they're asked to do. And that's the exonerating thing for the current weed board in this county. They don't have hardly any money to work with. A few thousand dollars. It's really, I mean, the county is a thousand square miles. So it's not enough money to do anything. And so, the, you know, they're running from pillar to post, uh, say, we have to do this, we have to do that, help us. And then finally, the default position is, well, let's just spray it. And uh, this time, the community, I hope, is standing up to that 
since we've had a 30-year moratorium on roadside spraying here, it's not something you would discard lightly. We're the poster child for an unsprayed county. Uh, and we do feel some pressure from, potentially from chemical companies that want to bust us. That is, they don't want the example of a county to figure out how to do it without chemicals. Right. So, um, and I, I kind of, and, and I feel a little bit like a lot of the videos that I make are, are trying to teach people to stop being afraid of, of weeds. And, uh, and so I don't know if you saw my mullen video, but in that I'm trying to explain like, okay, wherever mullen grows, it, um, it's, it's healing the soil and then, um, and then it politely bows out when anything else is able to grow in that spot. Yes, the great thing about Jefferson County is that a large part of the county doesn't need to recuperate from some damage. It never was damaged. A large part of this county is in Olympic National Park. A large part of the county is Olympic National Forest. Um, there's some tribal lands that are relatively undisturbed. There's a lot of state parks that are pretty intact. So it's not an agricultural county, and... That was an interesting choice because I came here by way of a couple places where agriculture was more predominant. And in those days, I was growing agricultural seeds, vegetables, herbs, and flowers. And after about 20 years of that, uh, and increasingly interested in native plants, I reached a, a watershed moment. I mentioned earlier about the airport and the two runways and so forth and the native prairie there. Well, about 20 years ago, uh, the county fathers, I guess, decided that they wanted a bigger airport, and they got some federal money to do that. But the rub was the Fed said you have to do certain things to the land for safety, and significantly they wanted a lot of trees cut down for safety reasons, flight paths and all that. They cut down about 200 acres of trees and scalped some hillsides and so forth, and then they burned the slash for two or three months after that. So there was this pall of smoke hanging over the area, and I would be standing in line at the post office, and the people around me would be saying, isn't it terrible about the airport? So after a while, light went on inside, and I went to the port commissioners and said, you know, you're getting really bad reputation right now from what you did at the airport why don't you plant some native flowers there and kind of redeem the situation by making people feel good about that place. So they decided to spend $1,000 on seeds, and they got planted out there along with about $300,000 worth of alfalfa crops, which is what you know you can mow at an airport. Uh, and that, that $1,000 turned into a spectacular bloom for several years after that. The hillsides that had been deforested were covered with poppies and lupins and daisies, and people were actually going out there with their easels and painting landscape scenes. Uh, and it just completely turned the public opinion around about the airport. Uh, and for me, it got me on the front page for a while. And at that moment, I decided to leap from vegetables to all natives. That was exactly 20 years ago this month. And um, I said, Congratulations, Florence. It's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from doing Abundant Life Seed Foundation with the whole spectrum of plants, including natives, but especially cultivated plants, to just natives as inside passage. And it's been 20 years. You know, the takeoff was a little bit bumpy, but a wonderful thing happened at that point. It became a regional movement to restore native habitat. And I was very much a part of that. So, you know, part, some of the time I was following, some of the time I was leading. Uh, the leading part I did was I made a point of making available as many species as possible that can be grown from seed so that people who wanted to restore native land had something to work with. 
And I just did that at the right moment. It was supposed to be that way. And so just to the point that I was about stone broke and trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, my business started to succeed. So now I want to I want to return to a, an earlier question, and then I want to move forward with a new question. And uh, so first I want to talk about, I want to go back to, what does the word noxious mean? Uh, unpleasant, unwanted, um, damaging. I've I've been using uh, the the expression the government is against it. Is that is that accurate? Um, well, uh, that's a tautology. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I, I I think that a lot of the weeds on the noxious weed list comes from uh, um, basically existing monocrops, and so you have an existing monocrop, and there's these these plants that keep coming in and making your monocrop not be a monocrop anymore. And damn it, they got to go because they're going to gum up our harvesting equipment. And if only my neighbors would you know get rid of it, then I wouldn't be getting it. And so then. That I, I, I kind of see that for a lot of the United States, that um, that's what qualifies a weed to be on the noxious weed list. Well, I'll give you two two things. One of them is um, it's the place where um, agriculture clashes with native. Uh, it's a place where we don't see value in things that are are healers of the land when the land has been that disturbed that it creates habitat for weeds. You gave the example of mullen. I like mullen, but uh, in some situations it can become rather dominating. And um, so what would be the middle ground? We, we try to find uses for things, but you know, mullen is a very useful plant, but how much of it do you need? Do you need a 1,000 acres of it? Probably not. So we have to figure out in our own situation how much of it is good and then at what point does it become a real problem plant. Uh, we can never have too many fir trees here because they're they're meant to be here. They they provide wonderful habitat. They hold the soil together. They you know preserve the watersheds and uh, do many other things. Uh, keep the climate stabilized. Uh, hold water in the soil so it doesn't all run off in the spring and leave us in a drought situation like California, which of course each year it gets a little bit more like that. Um, and it, so then the other part is what I was saying earlier about appreciation for what's already here. Uh, uh, Christopher Hobbs, who's a great herbalist from Santa Cruz, has uh, at some point many years ago put together a list of native plants of the Pacific region and then uh, using that as a template uh, identified herbs that have counterparts in other parts of the world so that maybe the thing is that we need to learn how to use the herb that's here rather than import one from you know Bulgaria or China or something and then create the disruption in the habitat. I mean, if it's already here and growing, we don't have to plow up the prairie. We can appreciate the prairie and uh, put the plow away and start doing more permacultural things with what's already here. And, and that leads me to my next question, <clears throat> which is going to be, um, uh, let, let's say that, that, that somebody, a permaculturalist, is listening to this podcast right now and is thinking, you know, oh, I'm making my seed list for what I'm going to buy. For I'm going to open up another quarter acre uh, next uh, next season, and, um, I, and I'm going to plant black locusts, and I'm going to plant um, uh, lots of squash, and I'm going to plant lots of strawberries and raspberries and sunchokes and potatoes, and I'm going to... 
and they're making lots and lots of lists of all the foods they're going to grow. And of course, they also want to work in natives. Now, let's say we've got this is a person that's that's in this region. They're in the let's say they're in the Puget Sound area, and uh, now they're aware of InsidePassageSeeds.com, and they like to plant with a seed mix where they mix their seeds together and go out and and uh, and throw them on the new hugelkultur beds or or throw them into areas where there's bare soil or um, you know have have a, a ready to go seed mix for any kind of situation that might pop up uh, as well as being their primary seed mix and then maybe they'll even make a few seed bombs <laughs> and throw those around empty lots and things so um, from your site what would be some seeds that you would recommend for a, a permaculturalist to, to purchase for use in, in their seed mix well I would start uh, if they have conditions anything like what what I have around here, I'd start with miner's lettuce. There's a whole number of different species. They're either known in Latin as Montia or Claytonia, depending on the particular species. And um, in in this particular climate and with a lot of shade and moisture, um, they actually grow from the California coast northward into British Columbia, at least, uh, in shaded locations along pathways near streams uh, it's a, a semi-succulent green that uh, winters over really well and when I moved to this particular location where we are today which was about 22 years ago I, I started to find a few plants but also I was collecting I was collecting from other locations and then I would uh, it's a difficult seed to collect because it drops its seed before the plant looks like it's really fully ripe like borage would be another example of that. Forget-me-not is another example of that. So what I have to do is I have to watch for a certain stage, a certain color, uh, a certain texture to the leaves that tells me the plant is beginning to die off. Uh, It's ephemeral plant. It winters over, and it's usually gone by May or June. And so I started to take the remains of the plant material after I'd shaken out most of the seed, but there was still some left. And I just walked around the place here and just shook the plants out here and there over bare spots. And sure enough, within a year or two, the entire understory in the winter was made up of miner's lettuce. Uh, I could show you places right now if we were to go outside and walk around that are still full of miner's lettuce. It's the end of May. So what started to happen, initially I would see the plant appear in January, and by late May or early June it was dried up. But as I naturalized it into my garden, I noticed that it started to show up in September. It came with the first rains instead of with the midwinter. And then I can find places where it persists in deep shade into July. So I now have it about 11 months out of the year. It's not edible all 11 months, but, you know, even cultivated lettuce won't do that. It'll bolt. So I see that as a candidate for vegetable. We just don't think of it. We think of it as a wild edible. But it's our cultural bias. We had already worked out the details of lettuce growing before we came to this continent. Similarly, people came from Japan 100 years ago and they brought bok choy with them, which they had worked out the details of in the Orient. Now we need to stop say, you know, we've been here for quite a while. We still don't even know what most of these plants are or what they're for. So let's use a list like Christopher Hobbs as a template and start exploring in there. And what's this wild garlic? Would it work to replace the garlic that we brought from Europe 
Maybe we should look into that. What is this Oregon grape? It turns out the root it has a lot of similar properties to golden seal, which grows on the other side of the continent in a continental climate where there's hard winters. And here we have soft winters, and we have a different plant. So we just need to change our database over to more native, and then we wouldn't have to think, I really want to bring that plant from New Zealand into this habitat because I think it's unique and I, I just like it. And Well, gardeners do that, but what if there's a plant that's 90% similar here and we just haven't even learned about it yet? Do you carry seeds for nettles? I do. Uh, do you have different varieties of stinging nettles? No. Just one stinging nettle? No. Perennial stinging nettle. There's an annual, too, but uh, it's not much found around here. So then if, if people wanted to plant, if, you, if people bought stinging nettles from you, do they need to do anything to prepare the seeds? Uh, they should just plant it in the fall and uh, when the ground is moist and will be moist for six months and it will figure out what it needs to do. What would be the wild edible, the native wild edible that you eat the most of each year? Well, that would be minus lettuce, not counting berries. But there's approximately 30 native berries in the Ish River country. And many people are familiar with the obvious ones. That would be like blackberry and thimbleberry. Um, but then there's more subtle ones that grow sometimes in very specific habitats, maybe deep in the woods or high up in the mountains. For example, salal is probably the most common understory plant in this region. It covers thousands and thousands of acres under the trees on the coast and in the interior. And it has an edible berry that has many, many great uses as food. Uh, and the plant itself has many other uses. But there's also another Galtheria that grows high in the mountains. It's a different color. It's small, and it grows more like a heather plant. Most people don't know it, uh, but it also can be eaten. So um, here's a case of where if we weren't so Eurocentric or maybe Sinocentric in our cultures, uh, we just stopped and said, what about North America? <laughs> what about right here? We might take that plant uh, and start experimenting with it, bring it down from the mountains, see if we can get strains that will succeed at lower elevations, and then start making selections for the ones that are the most abundant, the tastiest, they have the highest vitamin C or A, things like that. It's still unexplored territory for the most part. I, I remember uh, as a kid, I spent a few years growing up in the Puget Sound area, and um, <clears throat> I remember that there was one that I ate tons of, and it grew everywhere, um, and it was a tiny red berry, and I had somebody tell me about seven or eight years ago that it's referred to as a red huckleberry. Yes. Um, I'd break open a bottle of huckleberry wine right now, but I promised it to the people I'm staying with tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so then that would be from this red huckleberry. It's a, yes. it's a small berry. Uh, the, the, the plant itself is, grows like a bush. It grows pretty high. And the leaves are pretty small. They're about the size of a, of a, a navy bean. Well described. And uh, I would add it uh, often is found on stumps of trees that were cut. Or yes. Love the Google it, culture and nature. Yes. It's very acidic. Uh, the fruit Delicious. is from the acidic side. It's uh, it's not real tasty. It doesn't have a rich taste of the evergreen huckleberry, which is a late season berry. The red huck is an early berry. But um, last year, 
this is the fruition of a project I've been wanting to do for many years. I've been cleaning the seed of all these different berries uh, and pretty much just flushing the juice down the drain because I wasn't set up to do food and seed. As, you know, it's, my focus is on seeds. I have to do that. Food is optional in my processing. I was looking for a partner. I thought, if we could figure out some way to get the seed out without damaging it, there's all this food value. So I finally hooked up with a cidery in the last couple of years. At first they did some little experimental batches. Last year we really started to hit our stride. We did a very large amount of red huckleberry. It was a good year. They bottled it. Um, it's exquisite cordial, very sweet. And um, uh, I made a deal with them that uh, I won't go into the details exactly <laughs> of the business deal, but I get a small part of the bottling uh, <laughs> as part of the financial exchange that we worked out. It's favorable yeah. to them, too. All right. Uh, we have a nice friendship, and it seems to be serving everybody, and including the people who pick the berries, because basically I just turned them loose and said, pick, pick, pick. And these are people who like to go out and spend a whole day out in the woods picking berries. And um, they were doing pretty well with it. I don't know how many berries they picked per day, but I'm sure they had lots of $100 days. They probably had some $200 days. And for doing something as unskilled as picking berries and making that kind of money in nature, in a healthy environment, with uh, children present if desired, I mean, it's... It's good. It works. So if I go to your website, I can find um, more than one variety of red huckleberry. No. No, there's exactly one variety. There's more of red than one huckleberry. Now, huckleberry, of course, is a common name. They were talking about vaccinium species. There are actually 10 vaccinium species growing here on the peninsula. They all have food properties to them, although a couple of them are kind of on the margins. Uh, so we have some cranberries. We have some huckleberries. We have what's called bilberry, which is... Bilberry, blueberry, kind of interchangeable. Sometimes blueberry and huckleberry are interchangeable. Probably the most abundant one is the evergreen huckleberry, which uh, grows as an understory plant across several counties. And uh, a lot of that is when you eat wild mountain blueberry ice cream, you're eating evergreen huckleberry. Uh, the red huck doesn't make a very good ice cream because it's not sweet enough. Uh, so, but as a wine... It totally redeems itself. <laughs> <laughs> so now another another very popular permaculture plant is service berry. Do you collect the seeds for service berry? We do service berry. It's much more prolific east of the Cascades. So you, you don't have to go very far east of the Cascade Crest to find plants that are much larger and more prolific than the ones we have on this side. Now on this side would be more like a specialized knowledge, maybe within the your community or tribe would say, you know, that spot, those are the good service berries. And then other spots would be less good, you see. So, for example, here in Fort Townsend, I find a lot of the service berry has already been damaged by insects. But I do know particular bushes that produce really good. I do know locations that away from town, as you get into the wetter part of the area, where there's more reliable and uh, juicy crops, and you, you want juice. 
So I, uh, I was visiting a property uh, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and a fellow was like, yeah, this service berry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it out. I, I just don't really get much fruit from it, and I don't know if I like it. And, and he said, but you know what? I was looking through some seed catalogs, and they had a, they had a berry plant that was like called a, um, you know, a, a, a perennial or some, some kind of, uh, they called it the Saskatoon blueberry. And, thing. and I said, it's the same thing. <laughs> You're going to take out a perfectly good uh, um, service berry that you've been abusing and put in a service berry that's going to arrive as some little twig <laughs> and it'll be the same thing. Also called a June berry. Well, I have a service berry story. Uh, as you come into town here, there's one particular bush that is really good. It's right on the side of the road. I have picked as much as 25 pounds off that one bush, which is quite a harvest for one shrub. Well, one day, years ago, probably in the 90s, I was out there picking that bush. I would usually go out there about 6 in the morning because, uh, first of all, it's midsummer, so it's already daylight, and then there's not much traffic because it's a very heavily traveled spot, and I just don't like picking where there's a lot of traffic. So I did that, and then later in the day, I, for some reason, I had to go to the county commission meeting. I don't do that very often, but I did. And one of the commissioners, uh, he saw me walk in. He said, I saw you picking something along the roadside. What was that? So I told him that was service berry. I told him it was very abundant. He's a farmer. He was really interested. It closed the gap between us. I mean, we belong to different political parties and orientations, and he's an old settler family, and I'm a newcomer. I've only been here 32 years. (laughs) (laughs) But in that moment, we closed the gap between us. Uh, So by sticking my neck out and doing something in a very public way and also knowing exactly what I was doing and being able to talk about it intelligently, he got it. We've been friends ever since. Suddenly the two of you have a lot of common ground that you didn't know about before that. Yeah, and in a small community like this, that will happen. You see the same people over and over again. Uh, Where I buy my groceries, I see the county commissioners in the same grocery. Uh, So when I need to go to them and talk to them about this spraying incident that's going on right now, I've already got their attention. I don't have to establish credibility with them. They know where I'm coming from. Uh, and that's really important. And I respect them, and I don't say, you are a bunch of fools, and you're the government. And, and like, they are public servants who gave up something else to hold those offices. And it's not that they're power hungry. They're just my neighbors. I remember once, about a dozen years ago, a really nice man uh, got elected here, and he became mayor. And before the election, he was our guy who was running for council. And the day after the election, I actually heard somebody refer to him as one of them. Well, how did he overnight become... (laughs) (laughs) I went from one of us to one of them. Yes. It's because of something in people's minds. And I just have a different feeling about it. I think if you participate in government, for example, if you volunteer to be on a weed board or on any citizen group or you pull weeds along roads to help out or, um, you know, do uh, habitat projects for housing and there's a thousand things you can do you don't look at the government kind of that uh, you know sideways because you realize it's you if you use it I find the people that are most critical of government people who never go to public meetings never write letters to the editor they just stand on the sidelines and criticize and I don't hesitate to say that and if anybody listening is one of those people well Get busy and get involved because uh, you were given a beautiful constitution and an opportunity to have uh, amazing national experience, and it's all going south because people aren't participating. 
That would be the case with the, our noxious weeds. When people were actually out on the land doing the work that needed to be done every day, these plants didn't proliferate. It's when we said, I think I'll let a chemical do it for me, that we started to have these nasty outbreaks. And it only gets worse. And that gets me back to one of my original themes. I don't know if it was in this conversation or when we were talking earlier. Like, I see the end of agriculture coming. I see that people wake up one by one and say, wildness is the preservation of the earth, like Thoreau said. He saw that, you know, uh, there's entropy involved in agriculture. We're using up soil. We're using up minerals to remineralize soils that have been depleted. We're mining out, you know, we're quarrying the landscape. We're taking from here and putting there, and we're not replacing it. It's irreplaceable. So farming uses itself up. It's only 10,000 years old. I mean, there were people here long before that. So we need now to bridge to our pre-farming roots. This, to me, is the most important thing that I'm working on in my entire life, is learning more about this. And that means going in inside my own psyche and exploring the wildness that is there and connecting up with my shamanic ancestors who are not recorded in history before writing uh, before settlement before civilization and before farming those people existed for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years and they are all of our ancestors and I need to know what they knew if I'm going to survive I, I think an important point to add to what you're saying <clears throat> is that the birthplace of agriculture and the, the places where agriculture was practiced at the very earliest are, are now big sand dunes of desert. And so um, it's kind of like, you know, and, and, and it, it does kind of seem a little silly that we seem to be just ignoring that out of convenience. But at some point in time, that's going to be, uh, you know, Colin. Yeah, I have a, a dear friend here in town, uh if I described who she is, uh, she'd probably hear this uh, on your podcast and say, oh, he's talking about me. She has a bumper sticker that says, no farms, no food. One day, I, uh, she'll know now, when I pulled up to her house, I said, that's not true. And I started talking about salmon and wild berries and the things that I mostly focus on. And, you know, we haven't had a good conversation since then. That was years ago. It was like, if you're going to talk like that, I really can't relate to you like I did before. That was her reaction is it freaked her out that's that's true and and it's kind of funny i i saw um a movie um a few months ago and i believe it it, it took some of the movie was in this area and um and basically they're like oh we have to support these farms or else they'll, so it's like people were donating money to the farm to keep the farm going but the farm was basically kind of sort of getting ready to go under and it wasn't it wasn't doing well and when i looked at then they showed they talked about bad farms and then they're like this is but this is a good farm but it's like those farms are bad because they're doing monocrops but then it goes to our good farm and it's like it's doing monocrops too so how is it better and why are we bashing those guys for doing monocrops but but our good guys are too so anyway i know some people are listening and they're framing in their mind the question uh but there's so many people we need so much food we could never do it with just fishing for salmon and picking berries and my response to that is do you notice how much further food goes when you share it now, I keep getting little, uh, 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 what's the word, um, little bits of information that are 
anecdotal and, and sorry. So I, I can throw a couple of out. One is is that uh, Salatin had a video not long ago where he was saying that all the people in the United States could be fed entirely um, if we use only the land that was currently uh, used for lawns and for recreational horses. Agreed. And and so there's there's that. Another one was is that I just spent time with Seth Holzer, and apparently a study has recently been done, been done, and it says that if we use Holzer techniques, then we can support um, uh, 21 billion people. Um, I doubt it. And where I was going with that previous thought was um, that we throw away so much food. We waste so much food. Uh, I'm being told all the time in my newspaper or my radio or my computers telling me that I'm using, you know, 50 pounds of sugar every year and X number of onions and so forth. And I'm thinking, not possible. I could never consume that much. So how? And so what they're doing is they're averaging based on you know what is being produced and, and sold, and by the population, and it's it's stupid. Right. The grocery store will get a whole bunch of food in, and then they want to sell the shiny stuff, and then they'll throw a whole bunch out yes. that doesn't get. And it's like, yeah, well, that's just part of how the game is played. Fast waste. Of course, when we raise our own food, we don't waste hardly anything. Uh, and if if at the end of the process we have some leftovers, we might feed them to the chickens or something, so they, they're still not wasted. That's real different. And so at that homestead level, we're not using 50 pounds of sugar uh, or 50 pounds of anything maybe. We're using a little of this and a little of that. And as uh, it's the loaves and fishes has taught us for a long time uh, that you know when you share stuff, it goes a lot further. It's as simple as that. Now, you mentioned something a moment ago I want to go back to, <clears throat> just as real quick. Um, part of me is kind of thinking like uh, my, the, a red light started flashing in my head because, uh, you know, you said you had very limited time, and I think we're way past the we amount of time. <laughs> yeah, but you did mention your radio show. Uh, how can people find out more about you and your radio show? Well, I do occasional broadcasts on KPTZ-FM in Fort Townsend, 91.9. We are in uh, the first month of our second year of broadcasting. This is a project that took about four or five years to germinate. Uh, a lot of love went into it, and um, we're on the air now 24-7, although a lot of it, of course, is pre-recorded. Uh, and uh, it's all volunteer. Um, it's a small budget operation. The listening range is, uh, in some directions is 10 miles, in some directions is 30 miles. But it's streaming live on the Internet, so anybody can listen anywhere in the world for free. And it's mostly music format, and you'll hear an incredible range of music there. But what I'm into it for is the opportunity to do interviews with people like you, as I did earlier today. <laughs> and uh, Marisha Auerbach was another permie who came here earlier, and we had a wonderful interview. And um, I've had musicians from different cultures, and I've had... Uh, uh, people who, well, I have fishermen, and uh, it's, it's about the Salish Sea. I live on the Salish Sea. I've been living here now for 40-some years within a couple miles of the water, and I can always smell the uh, ocean and, and usually see it, too. And uh, it means a lot to everybody who lives here. And it was recently renamed from the various components of Puget Sound, Georgia Strait, Juan de Fuca Strait. The entire estuary is called the Salish Sea, and so I call my broadcast Living on the Salish Sea, and I look for people who are uh, doing really interesting things in this region, uh, maybe not well known, uh, people who are making a difference in the future culture, the permaculture, 
that's unfolding here, uh, but may not be notorious at all. They may not have written a book. Uh, they may not have the visibility beyond their immediate circle of friends. And then in some cases, they've had some pretty well-known folks, too. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I did an interview with Jim Nolman, who has been interspecies communicator in the San Juans for many years. I had uh, Deborah uh, Ross Chapin from Whidbey Island, who uh, teaches touch drawing. It's something that she channeled and now has taught thousands of people. She just came back from Japan where she was teaching workshops, even close into the areas that were destroyed in the tsunami, uh, it's, you know, it's helping restore the, the soul and the heart of the people to do something like the work that she teaches. And those people are known in their neighborhoods, and they may not be known in the cities or, or otherwise, but I try to get them on my show if they have a message. So it's a pleasure to have you on today. We did a turbo talk of like just what are the things I talk about, especially in my videos, but real fast-like because it was like 30, 30 minutes, right? Yes. So if people want to pick up on that broadcast or any others, the thing to do is go to the KPTZ schedule online and see if you can find it. Uh, it's not a weekly production, so um, you have to be very sharp-eyed to notice that there's one of these uh, Salish Sea broadcasts coming up. But they usually replay them two or three or four times because they're so good, they can't keep them off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. All right, Forrest, I know you got to go. Any last bits you want to share with the pod people? I was thinking about the, what would it be like for somebody to hear this talk, and they're in, where I came from, Illinois. Uh, in fact, I was just there a few days ago, and I'm always reminded when I go there, there's a little bit of prairie left in Illinois. The ancestral plants are still there, but they're just in the margins, very small margins. There is a movement also there to restore more and more prairies. Um, but they really wouldn't be able to envision the situation that I'm in here. Uh, this county is mostly in its ancestral vegetation. It's a unique place. Olympic National Park is a World Heritage Site, and that's the headwaters of all the rivers on this peninsula. Um, so, you know, we we focused as a as a community on restoring the Elwa River, which was dammed twice a hundred years ago, and so there was no salmon migration. Essentially, the whole habitat was removed from possible migration. In about 16 more months, that river will be flowing free again. And it is, um, it's an emotional thing for people here to see the recovery of an entire river shed and begin to see more and more salmon return to it. And that's what I'm working for. So wherever you are in North America or elsewhere, try to imagine what's been lost and try to imagine what it would take to get at least some of it back and work for that. And, you know, you'll find it'll take the rest of your life and you'll enjoy every minute of it. So Jocelyn and I are going to the whole rainforest uh, tomorrow. Any, uh, do you suggest that we uh, stop anywhere? Um, Sold Duck Hot Springs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I think, I think we're going to call it a wrap there. Um, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about native plants, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.